Several years ago, uh, there was a story on NPR about Warren Buffett and his kids. Now, if you don't know who Warren Buffett is, let me catch you up. He's the chairperson and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. It's a small holding firm, right? Headquartered in, of all places, headquartered in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, Buffett is often called the oracle, the oracle of Omaha, uh, for his incredibly savvy investments and for his frugality. Uh, his net worth is a meager $117 billion. Uh, he's the seventh richest person in the world. Now, if you've ever lived in Omaha or you know enough of his story, uh, you know that Warren Buffett lives in a relatively small house in a fairly nondescript part, East Dundee, which is a really kind of small little historical area of Omaha. He's still on the neighborhood watch. He drives the same car that he's been driving for decades. I mean, this is, many ways, what Warren Buffett sort of lives in. He's pledged, by the way, to give away 99% of his fortune in charitable giving. But the story, interestingly, the story on NPR was not so much about Buffett, about Warren, but about his kids, and specifically his, uh, his youngest son, Peter, uh, who's an American musician and composer. And it's interesting, the interviewer, the interviewer wanted some details about Peter's inheritance, which when I think about this, is sort of an odd question to ask. I guess what you ask, right, when you're the son of the seventh richest person in the world. And Peter's response to that question was to tell a story. Uh, here's what Peter said. He says, well, when I was in high school, our dad gave each of us siblings a million dollars as a graduation gift. Which, my, my parents are here today, and we lived in Omaha at the time. I'm just saying, <laughs> just saying. I would have taken 100K. It had been fine. It's okay. It's a pittance. I get it, right? I mean, a million dollars, he says, a million dollars. And it seems that the interviewer is like, well, that, that makes sense. But Peter goes on. He says this. My dad gave each of us a million dollars, but... That million dollars had to be given away to a charity of our choosing. And when I look back on it, Peter says, my dad was teaching us that wealth, wealth is a gift to be stewarded. He was teaching me and my siblings that giving is better than getting. And that generosity is always, always good. Wise words from the youngest son of the seventh richest person in the world. And their words, interestingly, church, their words not too far removed from St. Paul as he writes to this young pastor named Timothy, reminding Timothy that money and wealth and how we think about money and wealth really is a discipleship issue. Jesus himself says, no one can serve two masters. Either, either you will hate the one and love the other, or, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. 
Now, to be, to be really clear, Jesus speaks about money uh, more frequently than most of us are comfortable with. Of the 38 parables that Jesus tells, 16 of them are about money. And he's most concerned, if you were to pick apart those parables, he's most concerned on what money does to the posture of the heart. And then the actions that follow. The way of Jesus, as he both teaches it and he lives it, the way of Jesus is to be radically generous. And that, friends, that, that is what we're going to unpack today in that text that we heard Matt read just moments ago. So I'd love for you to grab a Bible, uh, hopefully the one that you brought from home or ones that we provide, and you're going to find in the New Testament the book of First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 6. If you don't know your way around the Bible, that's totally okay. They produce this thing at the front of the Bible called a table of contents. It's awesome. If you look there, it'll tell you what page First Timothy begins on. So you want to get to First Timothy chapter 6, First Timothy chapter 6. We're really going to start, uh, we're really going to start at verse 3. So, so Timothy, First Timothy chapter 6, starting right around verse 3. Now, as always, as always, before we can deal with the text, we must first address the what? The context. Correct. So, I'm thankful that Pastor Adam did most of this work last week, so I'm going to church plagiarize, which is just to borrow uh, what he said and recap it for us, right? Timothy, Timothy is a young pastor. He was taught and trained by Paul. So taught the words of Jesus and trained in the ways of Jesus. And now Timothy is left to pastor this fairly young, though robust, congregation in the town of Ephesus, who, like lots of congregations throughout the millennia, they have wandered away from orthodoxy. In other words, they, they've wandered away from the right kind of thinking and the right kind of behaving. And so St. Paul is commending Timothy to help course correct the congregation, to disciple the people back into the words and the ways of Jesus, which, as you can imagine, for a young pastor is probably pretty intimidating. I'm just going to say this, just, I'm, I'm sure you probably know it, but I, I'm guessing that when pastors first leave the seminary, they're not thinking, you know the first sermon I want to give? I want to give them money. Like, no seminarian is thinking that when they, did you think that? No, okay, that was going to be a weird moment if you did. Like, not, nobody's thinking this, right? So as, as, as I'm thinking about Timothy, right, it would be fairly intimidating. And, and friends, I, I get it, Right? Uh, shortly after I left the seminary, I was worship leading at the mother church of the church that we were planting so that the full-time worship director uh, could take a vacation. And after the service, I was approached by an elderly couple, uh, probably in their late 60s, who clearly didn't like the song choices that I had made. Now, how do I know that? They told me, right? they, they told me they didn't like it. This is what they said. You have to play the songs that we like, right? 
You have to play the songs that we like. We want you to play more hymns. Now, my, my very green kind of pastoral response was something like, we choose songs that best suit the theme, right, and the preferences of most of the people who are here. And their response to me was this. You have to play the songs we want because we pay your salary. Now, that is a discipleship issue. There are so many things wrong with that statement, let alone the idea that I'm going to use my giving as a weapon to get what I desire. But I was inexperienced and young. So rather, rather than address the issue head on, truthfully, I was intimidated by their years. And so I I just kind of said, okay. St. Paul gives words to Timothy in chapter 6, right at the end of verse 2, and I want us to look at this, right near the end of verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. In other words, what I'm about to say, Paul saying, is these teachings that I'm about to give you, address it head on. In fact, Paul goes on to say, If anyone teaches otherwise, if anybody else teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ and to this godly teaching, then they are conceited and they understand nothing. This is like St. Paul speak for just do it, like just address the issue head on. There are people in your congregation, Timothy, who are using a faux kind of godliness for social and economic gain. And so Paul's counterpoint to that is he's giving it to Timothy in verse 6. He says, godliness, godliness with contentment is great gain. And church, if if I'm going to write a word down, I'm going to write down contentment. That is a word to hold on to because contentment Contentment is a posture of the heart. The truth is, and lots of us know this, right? We were brought into the world with nothing, and we don't get to take anything with us after we die. Right? We, we have what we have. We can just be content with that. In fact, those who pursue riches often fall into foolish and potentially harmful desires. St. Paul says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I want to say a couple of things about that particular verse. First, money, money in and of itself isn't the root of evil. That's that's not what's being said, right? Money is not the root of evil, but a love for it is. Money in and of itself is not a root of evil, but a love for it is. And two, it's not the root of evil, 
It is, as stated here, a root of evil. In other words, it's one of the many ways that followers of Jesus can be led astray. Now, it might be, I have a hunch that it might be the root of evil in developing nations. Those of us who are in the developed world. It may be, it may be, it may be the root of evil in American Christianity. Where there is, and I said this in the adult study, where there is a a greedy kind of consumerism that is simmering beneath the surface. A greedy kind of consumerism is just sitting right beneath the surface of American Christianity. Here's how Pastor Adam and I hear it most often. I said this in the Bible study too, right? Is when people come for the first time, they tell us that, hey, hey, really glad that we're here. We're doing a little church what? Shopping. We should hear that language. I'm church shopping. And I'm consuming. You have a product. And I'm trying to see if the product is what I want. And so they'll say things like, well, you don't really have what I'm looking for. <laughs> to which I want to reply, like, like Jesus? What, what are you looking for? Money might, might be the root of evil in American Christianity. And so young pastor Timothy He's supposed to address the elephant in the room. Remind those who have fallen in love with money, with the power of money, with the stature of money, with the influence of money, to remind them that when their love for money is greater than their love for God, then they are in clear violation of the first commandment, to have no other gods before him. And sure, we could say, well, it's not an idol made of stone. That's true. But when we fear, love, and trust something more than God, it has become to us an idol. And so this is why, church, this is why in verse 17, Paul says this. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is, by the way, so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. (laughs) Now, I'm sure some of us are like, yes, Paul is dealing with the rich in this present world, right? The millionaires and the billionaires like Warren Buffett. That is true. He is dealing with them. But before we pull ourselves out of that equation too quickly, it's worth a small stop for some global perspective, when economists, when economists talk about the global wealth pyramid, they're referring to the following statistics. Point, listen, 0.7% of humanity, 0.7% of humanity possesses 46.9% of the world's wealth. 0.7% of humanity possesses 46.9% of the world's Wealth. As Pastor John Comer, those of us who are doing that adult study, he, study, he likes to say this, that, that 0.7%, those are the crazy rich people who, you know, drive a car and own a computer 
and have more than one pair of shoes and drink a coffee that costs $5 or more. That's the point seven. While 70% of the world, 70% of the world possesses a meager 2.7% of the world's wealth. 70%, just over two-thirds, they possess only 2.7% of the world's wealth. So what are economists saying? Let Let me translate this for you. In comparison with the majority of the world, friends, we are stinking rich. Right? We actually have a lot. We are, as Paul says to Timothy here, we are rich in this present world. Now, I've been to lots of parts of the developing world, and people are always amazed at how people with absolutely nothing, people who are living in poverty exponentially greater than anything we can know in the U.S., how those same people could be so joy-filled. They wonder out loud, like, how can they be so joyful? They're living on dirt in a house made of mud. Well, for me, friends, that question or that comment belies an errant assumption, right? The assumption is I need wealth and money to be content. I need wealth and money to find happiness. That greedy kind of consumerism just simmering beneath the surface. Paul wants Timothy, this young pastor, to command people, command people not to place their hope in wealth, which he says is so fickle, but rather to place your hope in God who is the provider, who himself is radically generous. You know, Moses uh, reminds us in Deuteronomy 8, 18, he says this, Moses says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And Paul doesn't stop in the New Testament when we're in 1 Timothy. He says in verse 18, he says, command those who are rich in this world, command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You see, generosity and a willingness to share, those good deeds, they allow us to experience life and life to the full. Now, I love this language of Paul. Why? Because I think he's actually tipping his hat to both the words and the ways of Jesus, right? Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I have come that they may have life and have life to the what? Full. And Paul is saying, when we are generous, when we share with those in need, right? When we give, those of us who are rich in this world, we will experience life and life to the full. Generosity begets generosity. Uh, December 15th, this is great. December 15th, 2020, in Brainerd, Minnesota, there was a Dairy Queen that saw 900 consecutive strangers who opted to pay for the person behind them. 900 customers at a Dairy Queen who offered to pay for the person behind them. It was an event that the New York Times picked up. It was an event that took two days. Two 
two days of generosity, begetting generosity. And so when St. Paul commands Timothy to disciple the rich in this world, when St. Paul commands us, he's commanding us to be radically generous, a generosity that is rooted in a generosity, specifically our generosity rooted in the generosity of Christ Jesus himself. Again, John chapter 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and life to the what? To the full. You know what follows? I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. See, Jesus is saying, I want you to have full life. I want you to experience a level of human flourishing that you have never known because of sin. I want you to experience a level, a level of joy that you have only had a foretaste of. I want you to experience this life so much that I am willing to give away everything. I want you to have this life so much that I'm going to be radically generous. Not with monetary means, but with my very blood. I'll give up everything. Throne room of heaven, presence of the Father, jewels and crowns, I'll give up everything, be radically generous so that you and I get to gain life. See, the life that Jesus lived was not for his personal gain, but it was to give his life in order to gain us. See, in this generosity, in the generosity of Jesus, in the generosity of blood that's been poured out on a cross, or a generosity of one who descends into hell, the generosity of one who conquers death and the devil, you and I have been given a different kind of wealth, a different kind of riches. We are rich, my friends. And let me be really clear, this actually is where we find our contentment. So let me say this clearly, contentment, contentment is not found in what we have, but whose we are. Our contentment is not found in what we have, but whose we are. Our contentment is found in the work of Christ for me and you. The way of Jesus is radically generous. And so when Paul commands Timothy to course correct the church, when he commands the rich in the world, when he commands you and me to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and be willing to share, he's actually commanding us to live in the way of Jesus. He's commanding us to live with radical generosity. I wanna be honest, I, I sympathize with the task that Timothy has. This young pastor who's charged with teaching and discipling his people about money and about wealth, charged with calling out what needs to be called out, charged with addressing a root of evil, that's, that's a tough task. And as I said moments ago, when I first came out of the seminary, addressing money was the furthest thing from fun. But church, the the longer I live in the contentment of whose I am, 
And the longer I live by God's grace, and the longer I live in the transformative work of God's Holy Spirit to both shape me and mold me in Christ-likeness, the less hesitant I am to address the issue. Because like it or not, the love of money is a root of evil. And it leads far too many people astray. And so from this point on, over the next several weeks, we'll be talking about money and what it does to our hearts and the ways that it shapes our posture to the world. And in many ways, we're going to address it head on. And perhaps it will make some of you uncomfortable. And yet, it is, as we've seen today, the way of Jesus. Also, from this point on, we're going to reinstate the gathering of offerings and tithes. Do you remember when we used to do that? We used to pass these things called plates, right? And you used to put things in it. You remember when we did that? We stopped that. And we've never really put it back in. And there have been some questions like, should we? And I'm like, I don't know. So why would we do it now? Because the action of receiving an offering or a tithe, it speaks loudly about what we think and believe. That the gifts in our hands are really the Lord's. So with a radical generosity, we get to give back to Him. We get to give through the church for the sake of the mission and the ministry. So resting then in the generosity of Christ and knowing that our commitment is found in Him, let me just be honest and pointed for a second. For those of you who are in this room who have never given to Holy Cross, it's time for that to change. It's time to step up. It's time to live in the way of Jesus. Friends, just start where you can. Just start where you can. Or for those of you in the room who have given haphazardly over time, sort of giving when you remember it, it's time for you to commit perhaps to a percentage of your gross income weekly. It's time to step up and live in the way of Jesus. Maybe that's 2%, maybe that's 3%, maybe that's 0.5%. Just start where you can. But it's time to live in the way. For those of you in the room who have been giving a percentage of your gross income, it's time to move towards tithing. Right, that 10%, the biblical expression of what it means to give back to the Lord. Again, start where you are. Maybe you're at six, maybe you're at seven. Move towards 10. And for those of you who are in the room who already give a tithe, it's time to move from generous to radically generous, to give above and beyond that tithe. <coughs> now, if there's anybody in the room who's saying, well, pastor, we, we do give 10% in charitable giving, but that's split between nine charities, of which church is one, I would love to have a conversation with you. 
Because from my perspective, that's a discipleship issue. I'd love to have a conversation of why I think the majority, if not all of that 10%, should be given to the local church. And then we can talk about your generosity to other places. Friends, it's just time to live in the way of Jesus. It's time to settle into His radical generosity and then to steward back our gifts. So over the next several weeks, we'll continue to explore what that means for you and for me, what that means for us as a family of faith, what it means to be radically generous, not just with our finances, but with our time and our possessions and our gifts, all for the sake of the kingdom. And as we do, may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, may guard and keep our hearts in Christ Jesus today and every day. Amen.